If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. We turn to experts for guidance in uncertain times, but what happens when experts disagree? This week, Professor of Philosophy at Stockholm University, Anandi Hatiagadi, investigates the logical labyrinth of expertise. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe, leave a review and head over to our website, iai.tv, for thousands more podcasts, videos and articles from world leading thinkers. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Um, I'm going to talk about something that I'm sure is on many people's minds these days, uh, because we are faced with many global crises and many individual uh, difficulties which require that we uh, consider the advice of experts. Um, so it goes without saying when we decide what to do, both individually and collectively, we need to rely on experts. So when you're ill, you go to the doctor. When your car breaks down, you consult a mechanic. But very often what we find is that the experts, or better yet, maybe the putative experts, disagree. Um, so, of course, this can happen if you go to a doctor uh, and get one opinion and then go to another doctor and get a second opinion um, and they disagree with one another, you need to decide which doctor to trust. And this happens at a larger scale when it comes to collective decisions as well. So here are some examples. Um, one example is climate science. Even though most climate scientists, the vast majority, agree that human greenhouse gas emissions are causing global warming, there is still a small but quite vociferous group of scientists who disagree. They present themselves as, as experts as well. And so we, again, have a case where it looks like there's two groups of experts who disagree. Another example is vaccines. Again, most medical professionals agree that vaccines that have been in use for many years, such as the MMR vaccine against measles, mumps, and rubella, are perfectly safe to use. However, there are some people, some of whom even have uh, medical credentials who are self-professed experts and who disagree with this and claim that vaccines are unsafe. The third example uh, that is very close to many of our uh, thoughts at the moment is the case of masks, whether to wear masks in public places. There's a, you know, in most countries it's been, uh, uh, it's been decided that it should be recommended that the general population wears masks in ordinary uh, circumstances where they can't be socially distant. And this recommendation has come into effect on the basis of the advice of a fairly large group of scientists. 
However, there's still opposition to this view. In Sweden, for example, the experts at the public health agency disagree with this kind of general view that it's useful to wear masks in public when you cannot be socially distant. Um, of course, in Sweden, healthcare professionals wear masks, but the question is about the general public. And the disagreement, at least in part, concerns whether masks are in fact effective at slowing the spread of viruses. In all of these cases, uh, the experts seem to disagree. Um, and the question in these cases is when they disagree, which ones should we trust? So this actually presents a kind of a conundrum, uh, which is called uh, the novice to expert problem by the philosopher Alvin Goldman. So the, the problem arises from the fact that as novices about a topic, we are unlikely to know the truth about that topic. That's why we need to find experts. That's why we need to, we ask, we need to ask for their advice. So if we want to make a well-informed decision about, for example, climate policy or whether to vaccinate our children or whether to wear a mask in a supermarket, uh, we just can't rely on what we already know as novices. In contrast, the experts on a topic are likely to know about that topic, right? That's just what it is to be an expert. So as novices, if we want our decisions to be well-informed, uh, we need to trust the experts. And of course, in many cases, for example, with climate change, with vaccination, with a pandemic, we can't just wait till the experts sort it out before we decide what to do. We have to make a decision even before that disagreement has been uh, settled. But the problem is that there is a stumbling block. When we find that the experts disagree, we need to decide which of those experts to trust. Um, you know, are humans a significant cause of global warming or not? Well, some experts say yes, some experts say no. Which ones should we trust? And the problem is that as novices, we by definition lack the expertise to decide which experts to trust. Okay, and things get worse. What makes it worse is that the internet now gives charlatans a much wider reach. The problem of expert disagreement has been around for a very, very long time. In fact, it's discussed by both Plato and Aristotle. But the internet gives a huge scope for people to put out all sorts of misinformation. For example, at the start of the current pandemic, the World Health Organization warned of an infodemic in which misinformation, bogus cures, and conspiracy theories were spreading faster than the virus itself. And this misinformation just continues its rampant spread online. Um, the second reason why we have a particular problem right now is that interest groups of various kinds have been manufacturing expert disagreement in order to throw dust in our eyes. For example, as Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway describe in The Merchants of Doubt, the tobacco industry a long time ago uh, was paying scientists to disagree with the consensus that had been growing that smoking causes cancer. And this technique is being used now, as they describe, by the oil industry in order to manufacture disagreement about climate change.
So there's all of this misinformation that produces an environment, a kind of informational environment that's extremely poor, right? We have a lot of confusing signals that are coming from all sorts of different sources. And this makes it particularly difficult uh, for us to work out who the real experts are. And finally, this kind of poor informational environment interacts with our own kind of psychological dispositions, our own biases, our background beliefs, and this might lead us also astray. For example, fear often makes people seek out simple explanations of our circumstances or problems, um, particularly explanations that involve human agency or simplify problems in a way that makes them easier to solve. For example, uh, Many, many people have started to believe in the face of the fear of becoming ill or dying from COVID-19, many people are tempted to believe uh, the simple explanation that it's being caused by 5G towers. Why? Well, in part, this makes sense. It gives us a kind of intentional explanation in terms of human agency. It makes sense of this thing that is otherwise just a random and, and uh, chance-like occurrence. And moreover, it makes the problem apparently easier to solve. Just get rid of the 5G masks and we're done. But unfortunately, that's not the way it is. Um, indeed, in many cases, our background beliefs can quite reasonably influence our evaluation of experts, though often this can lead us astray. So for example, if we want to determine whether to trust anyone's testimony under any circumstances, we need to work out if they're likely to be sincere and if they're competent on the topic on which they're giving testimony. This is something that we do all the time because we often get a lot of our knowledge from other people. Everything you learned in school, you learned from other people in the form of textbooks, in the form of written testimony, and often we will just ask people, if you want to know what time the train is coming, you might ask someone at the train station if they know, and we get information in that way. And in all of these cases, we generally tend to think that people are uh, going to be sincere and that they're reasonably competent on the question at hand. But these are two questions when we're faced with experts that we also need to ask ourselves, right? We need to figure out whether what they say on the topic in question is likely to be true. And the only way in which we can do this is to measure what they say against our prior beliefs. So for example, I'm not going to trust someone on geology or cosmology if I find out that they believe that the earth is flat. But ultimately, that's because I have a prior belief that the earth is not flat, which with, with which their beliefs uh, disagree. So we have to use our own judgment in order to evaluate the experts. And of course, the problem is, uh, that we don't have uh, knowledge, we don't have the relevant knowledge in order to be able to do that. Fortunately, there is a way out. There is evidence that we can rely on to assess expertise, though I think we have to be careful about how we evaluate it and how much weight we give to it. So none of the evidence I'm gonna present now is knockdown evidence. It doesn't mean that it just decides the question, but these are some things that you can think about when you're trying to figure out which experts to believe on a particular question. Okay, the first kind of evidence we can rely on is our own evaluation of the experts' arguments, the arguments they themselves give in support of their views. Now, this kind of evidence can be very difficult for novices to assess because sometimes the evidence is just so complicated 
that it's difficult for us to tell which arguments are good and which arguments are bad. So if you show me, for example, two articles in particle physics, one of which is excellent and the other of which is garbage, I may have absolutely no way of telling which one is the real deal and which one is rubbish. But sometimes, even when we don't understand all the details and can't check the data ourselves, we can look at the way in which experts handle questions or the way in which the arguments are made. And when I say this, I don't mean that we should see how authoritative someone is, how calm or knowledgeable they seem, because these kinds of evaluation are often very prone to bias. Indeed, it often favors men over women since we tend to regard a deeper voice as more authoritative than a high-pitched one. What I have in mind, rather, is focusing on certain details about the way in which an expert deals with objections or questions. So there are certain techniques that can be used to avoid difficult questions, and if we're alert to those techniques, we can avoid being fooled by the charlatans. So for example, one technique is the well-known pivot. Politicians use this all the time. And this involves answering a different question than the one that's been asked. So one example of this I have is from uh, the Swedish Public Health Agency, the state epidemiologist, when he was asked uh, about the evidence that masks are effective in certain circumstances, he answered the question, whether they were a panacea, they would solve all of our problems. He said, this is, not the this is not the solution to our problems. Okay, so if one question is asked and a different question is answered, that's a reason to wonder whether this expert is really trustworthy. It shows that the expert doesn't have a good answer to the question because if they did, they would answer it. Another type of technique is of course, dismissal of the questioner. And this we find happening very often. Donald Trump does this all the time. For example, when he's asked a question, he sort of dismisses the questioner as coming from uh, a kind of politi politically motivated position or just refuses to answer the question. So both of these are techniques. These are ways of avoiding a difficult question. And if we're alert to them, we can see when an expert is really fudging and when they're not, even if we don't know all the details about the data that they're uh, referring to. Another thing is that often, in many cases, we can, in fact, uh, have some understanding of the arguments that they give. Here's, a, I think, a good example. Um, here's an image that was produced by a microbiologist to demonstrate the efficacy of masks. What it shows is the bacteria from respiratory droplets that are grown in a petri dish after he sneezed, sang, talked, and coughed into them, wearing a mask on the one side and uh, uh, not wearing a mask on the other, right? And it's very, it's very easy to see what the argument here is, which is that masks cut down the expulsion of bacteria, even if they don't stop it completely, right? Similarly, I think that many of the arguments in this area are easy for people to assess. They're quite straightforward arguments. For example, one of the arguments against using masks that's been raised is that people will touch their faces more often if they wear masks than if they don't. Okay, this is a very common sense kind of argument, and it's an argument that we can assess as novices. There's nothing uh, esoteric about the argument. Now, of course, we still have to be very careful about evaluating the arguments given by experts because images can be manipulated and the arguments given by experts can be based on poor or anecdotal evidence 
or even fabricated evidence. So even though we can just take the arguments at straight value at, at face value and evaluate them, we still uh, need to be uh, a little cautious in the way that we do that. Okay. <clears throat> the second kind of evidence that we can use is evidence of the experts' track records. Right. How often in the past has a particular expert or group of experts been right? How often have they uh, come up with the truth on the topic? And again, this is something that can be quite difficult for novices to assess because some of an expert's achievements are esoteric, right? As I mentioned before, the way in which I can assess whether I should trust an expert on geology or on uh, cosmology has to do with some of their background beliefs and in some cases with regard to the belief that the earth is flat, I don't need to have any esoteric knowledge in order to know that that belief is false. But in the case of experts, sometimes what they, uh, their track record is measured in esoteric truths. However, in some cases at least, we are able to evaluate an expert's track record. So for example, if you take your car to a mechanic and the mechanic fixes it, then you have some evidence that she's a good mechanic, right? And this is, again, something that we can use in evaluating people's expertise in a given area. Uh, so for example, I think in the, in the case of the, the Swedish Public Health Agency's policy on masks, we do have some information on the basis of which to assess the track record. At least we have some information from the spring on the way in which the pandemic was handled and on the way in which decisions were made on the basis of evidence. So that track record we can use to evaluate the experts in their general capacity in making the decisions that guide our lives. Another case in which track record is relevant or we can have some understanding of the track record is in the vaccination case. Of course, thousands and thousands and thousands of people over generations have been vaccinated safely. And that kind of evidence is evidence of the expert track record that suggests that vaccinations are safe. Okay, this brings us to the third kind of evidence that we can use Right. A third way to evaluate which experts to trust is to look at the numbers, right? How many experts are there on, on, on either side? If the majority of experts are on one side as opposed to the other side, then that's at least some evidence in favor of the majority view, right? The reason for this, there are various, there are various arguments for why this is the case. Um, but one reason for it is that if we think that each individual expert is, is more likely than not, has at least a greater than 50% chance of knowing the truth on a subject matter, right? If each expert is at least more likely than not to know the truth, then when you get many independent experts together, they're all in independently more likely to know the truth. If they achieve a consensus on a topic, then their likelihoods add up, right? The likelihood that they're all mistaken gets very, very small indeed. Um, so, for example, uh, it's a widely cited statistic uh, that 97% of climate scientists agree that human activity is causing or is a significant cause of global warming. And now from the point of view of novice, right, 
the fact that that many scientists agree on this topic should be taken very seriously as evidence that they are uh, onto something, right? Because if all the experts are independently likely to know the truth, then when the consensus forms, they're even more likely to be uh, onto something than any one of them was individually. But of course, numbers are not everything, right? If a guru claims that the world will end in 40 days and all of his followers agree, right, uh, just because he said it, then the group of them are not more likely to be onto something. First, that's because the first, the guru, the expert may not be an expert, in fact, may not be more likely to know the truth about when the world will end than anyone else. And secondly, because the followers are just copying what the guru said. They're not in any way independent, right? They're not even slightly independent of, uh, of the guru's pronouncements. So in the case of climate science, you might ask, well, are the individual scientists independent of one, or, one another, at least uh, in, in some respect? And I think that there's a case to be made that they are. And the reason is that climate self climate science itself is a highly interdisciplinary field with experts coming at it from many different areas, from oceanography, from chemistry, from meteorology. And it's not as though the thousands and thousands of articles that have been published on climate science all present evidence for exactly the same hypothesis, right? That's not the case. Rather, the multitude of articles that are published in climate science substantiate a multitude of more specific hypotheses using a multitude of different methods, each of which supplies one piece of the puzzle, which together supports the view that uh, there is anthropogenic climate change, right? So in this sense, even though there's a kind of general claim that all of the evidence supports, the experts themselves are independent of one another because they are coming at this question from different angles. Now, it's worth noting that scientists are not perfectly independent, however, right? It's not a perfect independence. They don't just each sit in their own individual little sphere and come up with this evidence and ignore one another, right? And this is because, again, science is highly, highly specialized, and someone who's an expert on one very narrow domain is not an expert on all of them, right? So each expert who works in climate science in effect faces the novice to expert problem as well. The difference is that the gap between the novices and the experts among scientists is much smaller than it is when it comes to us and the experts. So even if climate scientists are not perfectly independent of one another, um, they are independent enough that I think consensus among them constitutes good evidence uh, that they should be trusted. And of course, the same holds for the safety of vaccines and the efficacy of masks. If the majority of reasonably independent experts believe that vaccines are safe and that masks are efficacious, then we should take that as evidence that the majority of experts is onto something for the same reason that we should do so in the case of climate science. Again, we have many different scientists coming at the question from different angles, and so they're sufficiently independent that their consensus has some, uh, should have some weight. Okay, the fourth kind of evidence that we can rely on 
is the evaluations of what you might call meta experts, right? The experts who evaluate other experts. Right? Sometimes the evaluations of meta experts are conveniently summarized in their credentials. For example, a relevant degree from a good university uh, is some evidence that someone has the expertise that is relevant to the topic in question. A prize, of course, is another kind of meta-expert judgment of expertise or a title such as a professorship uh, is another kind of credential that we can look at that is uh, a way of telling whether someone really is an expert. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that uh, when relying on this kind of evidence, right, evidence from credentials, that the credentials are often very specific to a particular field or specialization. So someone with good credentials in one field may not be well qualified uh, with regard to another. And this goes back to the thing I said about science being highly specialized. Just because you are uh, an expert in one narrow area doesn't make you an expert on all of them. So for example, um, I think about Freeman Dyson, who was a prominent climate change denier. Um, since he was a Nobel laureate and very distinguished, right, the evidence that we get from his credentials suggests that he was to be trusted as an expert. But the thing to bear in mind here is that Dyson was an expert in theoretical and math mathematical physics, not in climate science, right? And since science is so highly specialized, this expertise in one domain doesn't necessarily carry over to exp expertise in the other. So though Dyson might have had excellent credentials, they were not relevant for his expertise on specifically climate change. And that needs to be taken into consideration when we as novices are trying to decide how, uh, how to react to his testimony. Another important piece of evidence we can use is how well published someone is in peer reviewed journals, right? In proper scientific journals on the topic in question. And the reason why peer review matters is that it's a mechanism by which mistakes and poor work can be weeded out. Of course, the peer review process is not perfect, right? But it does work as a kind of gatekeeper. And I think that, you know, it's good to understand exactly the way the peer review process works in order to see why it works as a gatekeeper, right? It's not just sort of different points of view, pot shots uh, being thrown at one another, right? Peer review does work through disagreement of a certain kind, right? Articles are sent to reviewers whose job it is to find errors and to present counter arguments um, in those uh, uh, submissions. And there's even psychological evidence presented, for example, by Dan Sperber and Hugh Mercier. They've shown that we are most likely to arrive at the truth or we have the best chance of getting at the truth or we have the best chance at reasoning well when we engage in exactly that kind of argumentative activity, right? When we have an argument and our job is to try to find fault with it, our job is to try to find problems with it. Often this can be uh, made even more effective if the uh, scientists or the people doing the evaluation are 
antecedently opposed to the view, right? And there are many disagreements within science on matters of detail. It's often very easy to find someone who disagrees, who comes from a different angle uh, about uh, to review a paper. And so when we're at our most critical uh, is when we are able to find fault with uh, arguments uh, for the opposing side. And this is exactly what the peer review process attempts to institutionalize. Right. So even if it is imperfect, it's still the best kind of gatekeeper that we have. And the point about peer review applies not just to people, right? We want to look at their academic achievements, but it also applies to specific articles. So one thing that's happened during the current pandemic is that a lot of scientific research has been, has been put out, has been publicized, for example, by uh, newspapers before it has undergone the peer review process. And as novices, I think we need to always be very cautious in how we form our judgments on those studies before they've been peer reviewed, because they have uh, importantly not passed this kind of um, rigorous process to weed out the errors and the problems. Okay, finally, um, before I uh, close, an important piece of evidence that we can use to decide which experts to trust concerns evidence of experts' interests and biases. Right? The fact that experts may have an interest in a particular claim being true is evidence that they might either be motivated to be insincere or that they might be biased. Um, so, for example, as Oreskes and Conway make abundantly clear, many of the climate change deniers are bankrolled by uh, the oil and gas industry, right? So these experts have a clear financial incentive to deny uh, climate change or the anthropogenic uh, causes. Um, now, of course, you get these kind of bias arguments from both sides. So climate change deniers often argue that climate scientists are also biased since they have to seek research funding and they claim in order to obtain research funding, they need to demonstrate that global warming is anthropogenic. Um, however, I think that this charge reflects a misunderstanding of the way funding is given out in science, uh, particularly when it's given out uh, by public funding agencies. And again, the function of peer review within that process is to weed out the problematic work, right? There's competition within science and there's disagreement within science, which works internally in order to let the sort of get rid of the, 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 bat, the poor arguments and the poorly constructed studies. Um, so, there is one caveat, however, uh, that I think that we should bear in mind, um, which is that there's an argument out there that's been made um, by many people on many different sides that because everyone is biased, right? Not just the novices, but also the experts, uh, we shouldn't trust the experts at all. And I think that this is a mistake. So even acknowledging that experts are humans just like everyone else, and that we're all prey to different kinds of biases does not mean that we should not trust the experts. One reason for this is that um, even if the experts are biased, even if they're, they have, uh, they're fallible just like anyone else, uh, they nevertheless are more likely to have knowledge on relevant topics than we are as novices. And therefore, just relying on our own poor, poorly informed views is just not gonna get us anywhere. That is, uh, that's, 
That's, that's the way to make bad decisions. So that's one reason why we still need to trust experts. Secondly, for some of the reasons that I've already given, um, it seems as though we uh, have social institutions, for example, within science that help to weed out some of the biases that are um, inherent in scientific work. So here's just to summarize some of the kinds of evidence we can use to solve the expert to novice problem. Uh, one is evidence based on the arguments that the experts give for their views. Uh, the other is evidence of their track records insofar as we can assess them. Uh, the third is evidence of agreement among experts. How many experts are there on one side of the question? How many are on the other side? Uh, the fourth is evidence from meta-experts, so credentials, particularly specific to the topic at hand. And the final is evidence of interests and biases. This can give us some evidence, again, about what, whether or not the scientists, the experts themselves, are benevolent and trustworthy. Finally, I just want to say one thing, um, a little caveat about all of this, is that all of this evidence is mere evidence, right? None of it is knocked down. It's not going to tell us for sure whether uh, a particular group of experts is onto the truth or not. Even the experts' own evidence can always be misleading. So it is always possible that the people in the minority are the ones who are right. But nevertheless, the fact that the majority agree, the fact that we have these, all of these, all of these sources of evidence give us some reason to trust one group of experts over another. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Time. Please remember to like and subscribe and tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.